Welcome back to The Greatness Blueprint. This week we have a very special guest. She's been my best friend since she was born. She has put up with my silly games at home for years and years. I want to welcome to the show my sister, Lily Austin. Lily, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a great introduction. So excited to have you. And today we want to cover a variety of different topics, but the focus is around mental health and breaking some of the stigmas that exist around mental health and using Lily's expertise to help guide us through this conversation. So as we kick things off, Lil, want to get a little bit of an understanding of what got you inspired to become a mental health counselor and how you got started on your journey. Yeah, absolutely. So it's been a pretty long journey, I think, and one that I didn't really expect to ever find myself in. I've never imagined myself being a counselor. I, growing up, didn't know much about counseling, didn't know much about mental health myself. And so it really was probably about three or four years ago when I realized that was something that I really wanted to pursue. I, growing up, you know, got to do a lot of athletics, was very involved with the community I was involved in. And when I went to college, I realized for the first time that I was really out of my comfort zone, really wasn't feeling good. I was struggling a lot with my mental health and I didn't even know how to put it into words. And so at that point, when I was figuring out my degree that I wanted to go into, I decided psychology would give me the quickest answers to all of that. And so that was what started my path. And then from there, just different types of jobs that led me to eventually getting my um, graduate degree in mental health counseling and finding counseling is something that I, I really enjoy and I'm really passionate about. That's awesome. So before we dive into you becoming a counselor, talk to us a little bit about mental health as an athlete, because mm -hmm. in my experience, as you go through these sporting events, there's always this stigma, or at least when I was going through that, you got to be tough, you got to stick it out. And not necessarily talk about how you're feeling. Did you go through that and experience that as you were growing up? Yeah, absolutely. I I think that I always had that pressure, especially put on myself, you know, coming from me to perform well and to do the best that I could. And if you're trying your best, then you're going to be winning. And I think that is a beautiful perspective to have, but also sometimes not in your control. And so it starts to breed this perfectionism and these unrealistic expectations that can really take a toll on you mentally when you feel like you are doing everything in, in your control and you're trying as hard as you can and, you know, your, things are falling short, your team's falling short. I think that's really what led to me slipping into a negative headspace for a while and, and you know, taking a lot of time to get back out of that. It's a really tough environment to be in and, you know, coaches aren't always informed, parents aren't always informed and, when the goal is to win, sometimes mental health and physical health gets pushed aside, you know, for the team to, to get that win. So absolutely. Yeah. So going from high school where you had a lot of success to Wyoming, University of Wyoming, where you're playing on the biggest stage, mm -hmm. what were some of the things that you were able to do or things maybe that you learned through that psychology undergrad degree that helped you get over some of those hurdles or, or did it help you get over those hurdles? So I wish I could say that when I was in undergrad, it helped. <laughs> I don't yeah. think so. I think yeah. looking back at my career, I started out really good and then, you know, slowly declined throughout it. I don't think any of that had to do with physical talent or anything like that. I think it truly was my mental health that I couldn't figure out, probably because I didn't have the courage to ask someone else. I'm sure there yeah. were, you know, a lot of answers 
that someone else had for me. But yeah, I think, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's difficult as a college athlete. I think I, I tried to fix it all by yourself. And when you're, you're in that cloud or that fogginess of some sort of mental health concern or um, these symptoms, you can't really see how to get through it. So I don't think me doing the work in the psychology degree was really doing much, even though I was hoping it would, it would pull me out of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. interesting. I think it's tough too, because there's, there's this line and I don't know if you have a good definition of it, but when I think about being an athlete and being anyone who's driven, really, you don't have to be an athlete, but there's this Mm -hmm. line of mental toughness. And then also being able to say, look, I, I need to talk to somebody about how I'm feeling Mm -hmm. for you. What differentiates those two? And is there something that people can use to say, yeah, you know what? I I am strong. I'm mentally tough, but I've reached a point where I need to have a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, initially I'm wondering if maybe that happens right away is there's just those tools and those people that you do go see as part of the process. If you're an athlete or if you're, you know, someone who's in a really intense job, maybe that's just something that you, you get to seek out initially to get those tools before things get too hard. Also something that I talk a lot about with my clients is the window of tolerance. And so when we're in this window, you know, even if we experience stress, we're able to come back and get into a good headspace. We're able to regulate our nervous system. But sometimes when, you know, a couple bad things happen, we get out of that window and we really do need other people, specialists in those things to help us get back into that, that window of tolerance so we can start performing well again. Because when you're when that stress gets out of control, the adrenaline's going crazy. It's really hard to dial in, yeah, and hard to hard to perform the way you want to. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And I think part of it is understanding those emotions that you're feeling, mm-hmm. right? So before we go into some additional topics, want to get mm-hmm. your definition of anxiety and depression and some of the emotions that people might not be able to quite pinpoint what they are, Mm -hmm. but they know that they're not feeling quite like themselves. How do people understand those emotions, process those emotions and come to grips with what they do next? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I wish that there was more, more information about how to do that on our own, because I don't think it has to be just in the setting of counseling. I think it's something everyone needs to be aware of. And so something that's really helpful is just to start to slow down and and really get in touch with what are you feeling? What are you experiencing? And that can help, you know, that can happen by parents explaining it to their kids, by coaches being able to verbalize. I think a lot of times people are so afraid to validate an emotion that they feel or to identify an emotion because they don't want it to be true. Because if it's true, it's going to be too overwhelming. But in reality, putting language to what we're feeling allows our brains to start to process it and view it as not so dangerous, but something that is, you know, part of being a human and something that we can work through if we, you know, count on our community and and the people around us. So I think taking away that fear of identifying those emotions is a huge step and just having language to to call it out for that sadness, that shame, I'm feeling guilt, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do people get over that hump and go and and voice these emotions, right? Because often if you're building these up and you're not saying anything, maybe sweeping it under the rug a little bit, that Mm -hmm. starts to wear on you and you can reach a breaking point. So what are some tactics that people can use to recognize those in the moment and say something? 
Yeah, I think a great practice to get into is to start building time for mindfulness. And I know that's something that you've talked about in several podcasts, but really getting disciplined to have some time during your day to slow down a little bit and just, you know, recognize, okay, I'm feeling this anxiety. I'm noticing my thoughts are are really out there right now and I'm having difficulty controlling them. What emotions are going on in my body and what do I need right now to help out with these emotions? How can I be compassionate towards myself. So, you know, whether that's mindfulness, journaling, meditation, going on a walk to decompress after work, taking the time in your day, like you would to eat healthy food, work out, you know, all of these other things we do daily, taking the time to check in with yourself, I think is a great first step. If you don't feel like counseling or other things or what you want to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think often it can be people, you know, see these different stigmas around mental health and, because of that, they're scared and don't want to speak up. So talk to us a little mm -hmm. bit about some of the stigmas around mental health and maybe some of the contradictions to some of those stigmas. Yeah, absolutely. You know, unfortunately, I think maybe it's the culture that we live in or the, yeah, the environment that, that we grew up in that's so fast paced, so individualistic. A lot of people feel so much shame for feeling things that seem to be not normal. And the whole idea of not being normal is a really weird concept because, I mean, what really is normal? It's, it's a construct that we as humans have made up. It's probably exacerbated by a lot of things like social media, but there, there's so much guilt for feeling things that seem overwhelming. And so people are afraid to even voice it. And... So I think as that shame grows, the feelings get stronger and you continue to go more inward rather than being able to ask people for help. I think people are so afraid that if they go share something with a counselor, they're going to get judged or they're going to be told something that's you know, out of their control even more. And there's going to be no answers for them because no one else has ever experienced what they're experiencing. Uh, and so it just builds on itself and it feels hard to reach out. I know that there's a lot of also concerns about what if I get diagnosed with something and it it lasts my whole life, right? Like, I don't want to be told I have depression. That feels like it's the worst diagnosis I could have and there's no answer. But what we know is, is there's a lot of really great evidence-based interventions for these things. So yeah, I think there's just a fear of what will it mean if someone confirms what I'm experiencing or if there's, if there's no help for me, like I, I'm worried about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. You said people are afraid that maybe they're not normal, which is, is amazing because normal was defined by somebody out there. Right. Mm -hmm. And over time, society has said, this is normal. It's labeling somebody with depression and that can be heavy for somebody to feel mm -hmm. that. And so taking a moment to say, you know what? Yeah, I am feeling sad, but I know that I can take time, maybe get some treatment that I need and move forward. I think that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when we're saying like, who was it made up by, it's really important to look into the history of psychology was created by a very specific person. And it leaves out a lot of minority groups and minority identities in the first place. And it also it just, it says like, this is the only way to be healthy. And so diagnosing has a lot of flaws. And that probably isn't where we need to go today. But just recognizing that a diagnosis is you know, one term to maybe help guide what therapy looks like or what interventions you should do, but it's not the end all be all. And, you know, it's really just made up by other humans. So, you know, it doesn't yeah, have to hold too true. much weight. And I think one thing that's present in all of our lives, probably too much to a certain extent is social media. Mm -hmm. And so as you've worked more and worked with a lot of people, has social media been something that you've seen 
be a common cause for issues with people's well-being, maybe comparing themselves to something that isn't realistic or very surface level like we see on Instagram or Facebook or other social media platforms. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Instagram and other social media are so helpful for a lot of reasons. It can actually help to break down some of the stigma for mental health. I, I know a lot of people who have come in to see me and they're like, I saw this on TikTok or I saw this on Instagram. I had no idea. Like I finally have words like that language we talked about to describe what I'm feeling. At the same time, there's a lot of people who are not licensed. They're not clinically trained. And they're saying, you know, this is anxiety. This is a disorder. And that can be really negative to people. So you have to be able to differentiate and be able to discern what information you're taking in, which I think for teenagers and kids who are still developing, they don't have those cognitive skills yet. So it can be really dangerous for for those people to be getting all of that information. The main concern that I see with social media is that you're just seeing one quick snapshot of somebody's day and you're basing your entire life off of not meeting what that person is doing or your life doesn't look like what their life is. And I just think it would be so different if we could follow every single person around and recognize that we're all human. We all have a lot of messes. And yeah, it just it creates these unrealistic expectations for everyone. Yeah, I think Mm -hmm. it it can be paralleled a little bit to this imposter syndrome almost, right? Mm -hmm. You're thinking that you're not as good as somebody else because you only see this perfect image of them. Mm -hmm. And yet behind the scenes, they're just a normal person just like you. Mm-hmm. Right. So maybe talk to a little bit about some of the things that you've seen social media be good at that people can leverage versus some of the areas maybe that it's been not so positive. Yeah, I think I think the good really can be finding a community of people that you resonate with. So if somebody's experiencing a lot of anxiety and their whole entire family has never felt they're like they claim to never have experienced that before they're going to feel really isolated and alone. So if there's a group, you know, on the internet, social media, where they can can find some some community and some support, that's a great resource. I think that something that, that can be unhelpful is just, you know, what we talked about of other people look like they have it all together. And also other people are showing lifestyles that might work for them, but they don't work for us. Or maybe there's other disorders happening behind the scenes that we don't see from other people. And we're trying to replicate what they're doing because they look like they have it all together and they're struggling with very different things behind the scenes. I know that can happen a lot for especially teenage girls as they're comparing their bodies to other women that are on Instagram and other food that other women are saying is healthy. It can be really unhealthy for body image and develop a lot of unhealthy habits with that. Yeah. Yeah. I like Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. So if somebody's feeling, you know, emotions and they want to, talk with someone, right? I think one of the biggest hurdles people face is, look, I don't want to go into a counselor. That's scary to me. So Mm -hmm. walk us through what it's like to come in, see a counselor. What would it be like if someone was fresh off the street, never done it before, wants to come have a chat? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think recognizing how brave you are to just take that step, you know, to go meet somebody new, to go meet someone in their environment that you have you feel like you have no control over and just to share all of your deepest, darkest secrets. I mean, that would make anybody so nervous. And so I think every single time a person comes in, just recognizing how how brave they are for doing that. Um, but really what it looks like is you call the office and you set up an appointment. 
Um, and you come in and you just do an intake the first day. And you, you basically, uh, I ask you different questions about maybe your childhood, your family dynamics, some symptoms that you've been experiencing. And then from there, we get into what your goals are for treatment. And I think this is what is so cool is that your goals for treatment are not led by me or the other clinician. It's specifically what you want to work on in your life. And so I always tell my clients that at any point, if they feel like it's not serving them, they have every right to either ask me for a referral for another counselor or to change the treatment plan that I'm doing or the interventions I'm doing, because it's not about me. It's about what works for them. So I see them for one hour a week at the most, and then they go out and live this great, robust life that I don't see. And if the interventions aren't working, then it's up to them to communicate it. So I think with all that to be said, there's so much power being the client and they don't always, people don't know that before they go into a counseling center. Um, they feel like, what if I just talk to someone who doesn't, who's not really listening or, you know, they tell me what I have to do and I don't want to do it. Um, but there's really just so much autonomy being a client. And I think it's a really beautiful dynamic where they're the ones leading and we're trying to reach the goals that they have for their life. Do you find that it's hard for people to come up with goals initially when they're first coming in and, and talking with you just because they don't necessarily know how to get to where they want to go, or maybe they don't even know where they want to go. They just know they don't want to be where they're at right now. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I see that mostly with the kids that I work with. So I work with anywhere from like seven years old up to, you know, forties, fifties. But I think with a lot of kids they are like, I have no idea, but you know, things are just hard right now. So we'll work with people and, and give them just a chance to maybe experience some coping skills and try out some things. And then maybe if that cloud is lifted a little, or there's a little bit more insight to what they want, we can, uh, we can change those goals up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You mentioned you, you work with kids often. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a good way to segue into that a little bit. Talk us through how mental health in kids may be different from what you see with adults mm -hmm. and how you can manage them effectively. Maybe tips for some parents that may have kids going through some tough times. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's, it's really great to get to work with both populations in different age groups, just because they are very different the way that we, we have sessions, but really we, it, it follows the same pattern, I guess. We have our goals, we have our treatment plan, but something that I see with kids that I spend a lot more time with than I do with adults is just developing a safe spot for them to come and a place where, you know, I'm not prying for information or anything like that. We're just creating a space where we can talk about things that are scary and we, we work really hard on identifying emotions and we work really hard on identifying where those emotions show up in their body so that they can start to have that language as they get older. Um, you know, I always think as a kid's counselor, they're probably going to need another counselor again in their life, but we're creating that foundation and helping them get through some of those moments right now. What often do you see with kids that they're having to deal with? Is it that as you create this safe space, do they not have a safe place they can go today or... They just need a separate environment to help get them out of their funk. What does that typically look like? Yeah, I think it, it really depends on the kid. And that's something about mental health that is, it's really hard to give any concrete answers. There's so much just gray area. And I think that's where people get frustrated because it really is such a one-on-one -on -one dynamic where every single person is so different. Um, but I think for the most part, we see either kids who have experienced some sort of traumatic experience and we're working through that you know, kids who are experiencing a lot of anxiety and maybe wanting to stay with their parents a lot. 
um, having difficulty transitioning to school or transitioning out into the community, um, or we have a lot of emotional disturbances or just difficulty regulating their nervous system. Um, as much as I think our society blames parents, if kids are, you know, acting in a certain way, there's so many factors to that. And so, you know, the house might be perfectly safe and there might just be a kid who really internalizes a lot of their emotions and, you know, doesn't want to make anyone feel bad or anything like that. And so I think it really just depends. There's definitely some home environments that seem to be a little bit more, more like high energy or less routine, which might be stressful for certain kids while other kids totally thrive. So Again, it's just, it depends. I think parents have a really good insight though if their kid isn't adjusting and maybe their teachers have stepped in and said, hey, we're seeing a few things. It might be worth having another person just for the kid to talk to or or for them to go that's a little bit separate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And is it typical that you'll just meet directly with the kid and the parent's not involved usually? Yeah, so it's actually pretty involved with the family too. It's a lot more looking at the family as the problem rather than the kid. And so looking at how can we change different dynamics within the family, I always see the parent first and then I'll see the kid for the intake session because I don't love the parent talking in front of the kid about them and their concerns. But then I typically try to have, you know, parent sessions if it's needed or have a family session if it's needed and be able to mediate some of those conversations. So with kids, there's definitely a lot more of the family group sessions than with adults for me. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And is it often that you're almost having to play counselor to the parents to help them get over some of the things that maybe the kid is facing? Or is it usually focused around just the child? Yeah, I think it's recognizing and it's just like in couples counseling, too. You know, it's not like the couple is each partner is talking to the counselor saying, like, choose me, I'm right. Mm -hmm. It's saying like, okay, you guys both have really valid experiences that are happening. And in your mind, this is so real, but how do we build understanding and empathy for each other? And how do we work on, yeah, seeing the other perspective and seeing, okay, how can we both find a resolution here? That's maybe a little bit outside of the box because both people are so set and stuck in what they're doing, I think for kids or for adults. And for the adults, do you find that they also have this stigma of, my kid has to go visit mm-hmm. a mental health counselor. I feel like I dropped the ball as a parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that it even more so with parents and maybe it's it's a different generation, but there there is a lot of reluctancy to even come in for a session. And so if I ever ask, they're usually super willing to, but there's a lot of hesitation I see from the parents to come into the counseling center and mm-hmm. to get help um, for themselves or or just to say like, these things that I learned as a kid aren't working the way that I thought they would. And I just need help. It's almost seen as maybe you as a parent aren't doing good enough or that's how they're perceiving it. And that's not not the case at all. But I think a lot of parents are really worried that they're going to get judged if they come into a counseling room for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And I think it's important for parents to, I mean, I've been there where you're going through something and it's tough and, you know, you have to put your ego aside and say, you know what, I have to push through with this for my for my kid. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm coming from a place where I don't have children. I've just worked with kids and I've worked with families. And so there's also a lot of humility that I have and recognizing that I'm able to do a lot of work with the kid because I see them for one hour and the parents are with their kid for the rest of the time. And so recognizing that I'm going to have, you know, a longer fuse than they do so we can get work done during our session. 
it's just a totally different dynamic and it can't be compared. But I think together we can really work to get to where the family wants to be. That's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's segue into perfectionism and mental health. I know that Mm -hmm. this is something that you've dealt with personally throughout your life. And maybe one of the reasons that you struggled a little bit within sports is you wanted to be perfect. You wanted to be the best player you could be, but it's tough in college sports and there's things that you face and hurdles you face. So talk us a little bit about maybe some of your backstory with trying to be perfect perfectionism Mm -hmm. and some of the tactics that you've learned to help cope with that. Yeah, absolutely. Perfection is something that I have always wanted to do. I thought it would make everyone else's lives a lot easier. And so I've always just been a person who, you know, wants to minimize conflict as much as possible and just figure it out on my own. And a lot of times I felt like if I if I learned how to do it perfectly, then we wouldn't have to bring it up anymore or whatever it is, right? So I think you can attest to that growing up, like, I just, I tried not to complain or, you know, just make too big of a fuss about anything. And I think that really tied into the perfectionism. And what I think is so interesting is, you know, high achievement is on the opposite end of perfectionism because perfectionism is really trying to get to this place that is totally out of our control. We can never do everything perfect. We can never be a hundred percent. We can give a hundred percent effort, but we, we can't control the outcomes of things. And so when we get so locked into that, we really lose our voice and power, I think. Yeah. And so it's just been a really long journey, I think, to unwind that a little bit and recognize that you can you can work really hard. You can give your best effort. But perfectionism is just something that's, that's not achievable. Yeah. So I think that's been been my experience with it. I see a lot of clients, though, that also experience perfectionism. And so we talk a lot about, you know, what is in your control and what is not. Because the moment we start thinking in our mind a lot about what's out of our control, I think it's really debilitating. And we start to lose a a zest or or like a love for life because we just feel like things are happening to us. And I don't know. Yeah, we can't control it. It's it's just things are are happening and, and we can't go anywhere with it. So we really try to bring the power back to the client and just talk about what's in your control is it worth it to be perfect or are you missing out on other things and and what can you gain from just doing good enough mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so focusing on avoiding conflict that's something that you did early on and it is hard right you don't want to cause confrontation with the people you mm-hmm. love the people that are around you so what do you do now to navigate some of those situations to avoid trying to be perfect as the outcome and focus more on maybe the process and some of the things you mentioned around focusing on what you can control and and comparing versus what you can't control. Yeah, I think the main thing that I try to do is just look at, you know, I can't control any outcomes. I can't control the future, but I do know what I need right now. And I do, I do know what I can control the moment. And so I feel like I work really hard to a manage my emotions and cope with what I'm feeling, but then also recognize that, you know, certain things do need to be talked about and I can communicate my needs and I can communicate my feelings. And that is in my control and it's in the moment. So I think a lot of times with confrontation or with anything that seems overwhelming for a person, it's it's about like, what if this happens? Is something horrible gonna, you know, become or come from this? rather than just saying, okay, you know, I can handle whatever happens in the future, but I know that I, I, 
I need to do something right now and make a change. So I rely on just coming back to the present moment, not trying to predict any outcomes and just go for it and know that I can handle what comes in the future. Sometimes it's hard to identify what's in your control and what's out of your control. What are some tactics that you use to slow down and realize what are the things I can actually impact right now? Yeah. So I think it's, it's looking at being aware of, of your thoughts and looking at what is a future thought, future worry. And is there anything that I can do right now? And you're right. It is a learning experience rather than looking at what other people need to do for you or how other people have maybe impacted you looking at, okay, what can I do in this moment? I go back to the idea of, you know, the only thing I can control are my actions. And so that's really what I need to lean on and lean on my values. And if I'm in alignment with my values, I'm in control of my actions, then I'm probably going to be okay as it goes forward. But that's, you know, that's recognizing that there's uncertainty and there's risk to that and just going with it. Cause I think that's part of life is just recognizing that we don't know what's going to happen in the outcome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think instead of focusing on the potential outcomes, mm. it's saying, I'm going to focus on this process that mm -hmm. may go towards that outcome that could happen potentially, mm -hmm. but I'm going to take one step forward and one step forward from there. And I'm going to learn and maybe I'll have to pivot or go yeah. a different direction, but instead of just worrying and not going anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. If you stand where you are now, you're not going to end up anywhere. Mm -hmm. Taking one step forward and continuing to move along and focusing more on process oriented movement Mm. is a way that you can get through some of that? Is that how you think about it? Yeah, I think that brings up a really good point um, that I hadn't touched on yet is that our brain is so geared towards safety. And so the thoughts that we have about the what ifs, the potential problems, it's going to be all about the things that could go wrong. And if it's something that we're not used to, so let's say it's the confrontation example, it's going to tell me every single thing that could potentially go wrong because it feels unknown and it's really dangerous. And so just recognizing that, you know, those are all what ifs. And yeah, like you said, they could happen. But most likely, if my brain's trying to keep me safe, it doesn't fully know. Like, I want to try this other thing. So we're going to see how it goes and see if my brain was just playing tricks on me trying to keep me safe. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know I'm experiencing that right now. I'm about to go on this flight for my work and it's a small little plane. It's over the mountains. Mm. And all I can think about is, oh my goodness, I hate small planes and the mountains. It's a terrible thing, but I need to overcome my fear. I'm focusing on the what ifs versus just one step at a time, climb myself on the plane, buckle my seatbelt. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's yeah. Hard. Yeah. And if you know that, that it's something new, you probably know that you're going to experience a little bit of a racing heart. You might have some of those racing thoughts, but I like to look at, you know, afterwards, how are you going to feel? Are you going to be excited? Are you going to feel connected with your, with your team? Are you going to feel like high on this adventure seeking? If that lines up with your values rather than the before you're nervous and, and you really don't want to go. So, you know, focusing a lot more on what am I going to gain from this rather than, oh, I'm nervous. I don't think I should do it. It can be a really helpful mindset to have. You mentioned mm -hmm. that a little bit, but values, mm -hmm. and we've talked about this before, but values-based approach to making decisions. Can you walk us through that again in a little more detail on how you use that framework? Yeah, absolutely. So it's one of my favorite counseling modalities. It's called ACT, except acceptance and commitment therapy. And basically it talks about how we want to be in the present moment 
We want to create space from our thoughts. It's called thought diffusion. So recognizing that our thoughts are just thoughts. They don't have to be the truth. And then creating a life that's based in our values rather than based on our emotions, our relationships, that sort of thing. And so a lot of times our emotions can feel so big that in the moment we're, we're choosing actions, which is the only thing we can control based off of our emotions or our thoughts. And when those emotions and our thoughts start not being congruent with the values that we have, it creates a lot of separation and this just a a feeling that your life isn't going the way that you want it to, or there's like this disconnect with yourself. And so a, a lot of the work that we do is how do we process our emotions separately? How do we recognize our thoughts? But then, you know, despite the the uncomfortable feelings that we might be having or the uncomfortable emotions, choosing the values that we care about and making our decisions based on those. And so it doesn't mean you're not going to be scared, but maybe the plane is something that in the long run matches your values more. Right. Um, And so just deciding what those values are that you want to base your life off of. And that's going to create the satisfying, meaningful life that people want to have. So it's not chasing the fun, exciting thing because Mm -hmm. excitement is a fleeting emotion. It's chasing, you know, okay, I really care about community or I care about having these um, connections with people. So I'm going to chase this route. Or, you know, I value a stable house and a garden. So I need to say no to those plans because that's that's the value that I have. Yeah. So making our choices based off of our values rather than based off of thoughts and emotions, which are are pretty random and and fleeting. Yeah. You mentioned something in there. You said our thoughts are just our thoughts. And when I think about that, I think about negative self-talk. Someone that maybe makes a mistake and they say, ah, I'm an idiot. And then they start to think that they're less than they actually are. Mm-hmm. Is that the framework you would use here to overcome some of that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's a couple different things that come up for that. Negative self-talk can be interesting. And, you know, one strategy can always be, okay, notice that you have a negative that critical voice inside and maybe come up with a pretty good alternative thought. And that can be really helpful for some people, but some people find that that negative thought becomes a really intrusive thought that never goes away. And all of a sudden they're fighting it with a positive thought. And because they're fighting with it, it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And they're like, I'm so, you know, I'm, I'm worthless or whatever it is. And so for a lot of people, It can be really helpful when they're really stuck in this cycle of negative thoughts, intrusive thoughts, maybe obsessive thoughts. It can be helpful to start to gain some mindfulness and just awareness of a thought and begin observing it as a thought, recognizing that there's no truth to it. The more that we fight with it, the more we we reject it, the more we're telling our brain that maybe it is true, right? Like we do need to fight it because there's, there's some danger to it. So I would say for some people totally works to say like, okay, how can you do a positive reframe? But then for other people, it's really helpful to just say, why don't you just observe it as a thought? And, you know, it's a thought just like your random thought about food earlier. It's a thought like your random, you know, thought about a memory that you enjoyed. It doesn't have to hold any meaning because all you can control is the actions that you take in life. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So you walk by a donut shop and you say, oh, I'd love a donut, but you don't get a donut because that's not part of maybe your health goals or your values at that point in time, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So something I like to always tell, I guess, two different examples that I like to tell my clients and I'll, I'll just ask you the question. So on your way, did you drive to work today or did you work from home? I drove to work today. Okay. So do you remember any cars? Did any cars stick out to you that you still remember now? 
No, not a single car. Okay. Do you remember any cars from earlier today? Or what's the last car that you remember driving next to? I remember going by a big semi truck that had a red hood and had some dirt in the back. And that was, that was driving with my daughter to school this morning. Okay. Why do you think that one stood out to you? Just out of curiosity. It was just so big and it was compared to the other cars. I was thinking, man, if honestly, I was thinking if you would get in a car crash with this thing, it is massive and it would be a, a bad situation. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that's exactly, you know, I feel like that's the right answer. So when we have these thoughts, you passed millions of cars today, at least a hundred thousand cars, right? Yeah. And none of them stood out to you except this big truck that seemed really different. And so the thoughts that really don't align with us sometimes get stuck more because they seem really threatening or really out of place. And we're like, if they're in our head, they must be true. But we want to get to the point where even that big semi is just passing through because it's just a random thought. So yeah, I think that takes some of the, the, the impact of that thought away when you're like, oh, it can just pass through like any other thing. I can just observe it. Yeah. I like that. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. You got me. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> it worked. Yeah. I think the only other example that I'll share about intrusive thoughts and what to do if that negative self-talk is, is really big. So the other example that I do is telling you to not imagine a white bunny. Don't think about what it looks like. Don't let it come into your mind. Don't think about what it might smell like, what it might feel like, what it would feel like if it jumped off of your lap. Don't feel, you know, the ears, the hair, anything like that. Don't think about it, whatever you do. All right. It's super hard. Right. <laughs> and maybe yeah. you're able to push it out a little bit, but it's like right on the outskirts. Right. And so the more we fight with these thoughts, the larger they get and the more they stay. It's like, it's just the way that our brains work. And so when we can just allow a little bit more space, recognize that, you know, thoughts can hang out for a little bit, but they don't need to be threatening. It can be really releasing for those intrusive thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's like telling a kid, don't, don't touch that or, <laughs> yeah. even, or don't lick that, you know, like just, <laughs> right. it, and you say don't, they're absolutely going to do it. So <laughs> yeah, their tongue is on the thing. <laughs> it's a good way to distract yourself from the current situation is to say mm -hmm. don't to somebody. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So moving on to a different topic here, focused on fear and avoidance and some of the links between those and our mental well-being. Can you talk us through that and what you've experienced? Yeah. You know, I feel like this could probably be like a full, full conversation because there's a lot to fear and avoidance, but we also have touched on, on a little bit of it. So really, like we said, our brain is is there to keep us safe. And so when you know you're you're facing a bear out in the wilderness, your brain's going to tell you run away and you're going to get adrenaline into your into your body and you're going to be able to run, maybe you fight, whatever it is, right? It's the fight or flight response. But the problem is is sometimes our brains we start to have these thoughts that trigger the same response. So we have the fear of what if I see a bear rather than I'm seeing a bear. And our brain sends out the same response. We get adrenaline, we get cortisol into our brain. And obviously you want to avoid. So you're going to say like, okay, I need to stay home because what if I see a bear, right? And so while it gives you that short-term relief for one day, you feel better. Let's say that it's not a bear you're avoiding. Maybe it's what if you mess up at work and that's why you stayed home for a day, right? 
all of a sudden you've created this short-term relief of, okay, if I stay home, I won't feel that fear. But the next time you have to go to work the next day, your brain's going to send that same response. And so we get really stuck into this cycle of we've told our brain it's not safe to have that fear of what if I do bad at work. And so every single time we do it again, it's going to feel really overwhelming and it's going to feel really scary, even though we don't even know if it's true or not. It's just that thought, right? Yeah, I experienced that in my career. I mean, I've mentioned this before, but public speaking has always been something that I've struggled with and not because mm-hmm. I can't speak articulately or I don't know the topics that I'm discussing, but it's usually because I get up there and I just freeze. I'm stressed. I'm nervous. I create this mentality that I'm going to get up there. I'm going to fail. I'm going to stumble over my words. I think about the outcome before I even get up there. Mm-hmm. And so anytime I'm asked, you know, Luke, do you want to do a speaking opportunity? I'm like, ah, oh, my first reaction is no, I don't. I don't want to do mm-hmm. that. That's stressful to me. That something bad could happen. Yep. But I think I'm I'm going through that same avoidance and, and fear that isn't really there. Mm-hmm. And you know what's interesting too is the adrenaline is going through your body. You are feeling these nerves, you're feeling the stress, and that is so real. But the way to get through it long term is to start saying yes to more speaking engagements. And if I was doing exposure and response prevention with you, I would say, what else could you sign up for in the community to start doing so many speeches? Because eventually what we see is that that anxiety goes down because you're you're retraining your brain and you're telling it that it's a safe thing to do. And so it's just it's interesting because, yeah, we fall into those patterns, but it's not totally, totally hopeless. You can definitely help to create a new pattern with your brain to tell it that it's it's okay. Yeah. And how long does it take for somebody to retrain their brain? It, is there any studies around how long it takes to get oh, over something like that? I know that exposure and response prevention is one of the best evidence-based interventions for anxiety and OCD. And what that is doing is you're just exposing yourself without engaging in some sort of safety behavior. And so I know that it's tried and true. And the most important thing is to keep doing it until you feel that anxiety fall down. If you leave the presentation right when your anxiety is peaking, you're not going to want to ever go back. (laughs) But I know that at least in my experience, I feel like my anxiety levels come down eventually. And that's when you can be like, okay, I did my speech for the day and I can, you know, go, go on. Do you notice that when you're, when you're doing speeches? Yeah, it's, it's almost more of the buildup than anything, mm-hmm. right? The few days before, maybe the f- couple hours before the presentation, walking up to the stage and mm-hmm. getting ready to talk, you start speaking, maybe you get five minutes in and it becomes a lot easier, but mm-hmm. getting over that initial hurdle is the hardest part. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think it's called precipitatory anxiety. And it's when anxiety is at its peak is when your brain is like, you really shouldn't do this. You're really unsafe. You should go home right now. But just pushing through it is huge because you're you're helping yourself out. And part of it for me is I know that I have at some level imposter syndrome that Mm. I question my expertise at times when I'm talking in these conversations because you, you look at other people and you say, yeah, you know what? They, they know more than me. They can speak better than me, but inside Mm -hmm. I'm sure they're also dealing with that same level of stress. And maybe Mm -hmm. like you, like you've mentioned, they've just done more speaking engagements and signed up for more and got over that hurdle, (laughs) or maybe they have a different hurdle that they're not facing in the same way. So Mm -hmm. it's all perspective and it's, it's just hard to get out of your own perspective to, Mm -hmm 
see the full 360 view. Yeah. And I think that that brings up a really good point. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing, you know, is there any emotions that are underlying that anxiety that you might be feeling? A lot of times when our brains kick off with all of those what if thoughts, there's some sort of, you know, maybe it's fear, maybe it's, you know, worry, maybe it's something else like that. And then your brain tries to rationalize it about the speech. So do you think there's any emotions underneath it? Yeah, I don't know. It started in high school when I had speech class and then I did it in college as well. And I don't know if it was me maybe not preparing enough in high school and in college. Mm -hmm. And so I had to wing those presentations. And because I did that in such a short amount of time, I went up there, didn't feel confident. And mm -hmm. that then created a baseline of what I expected for all presentations is that mm -hmm. I feel this way because I didn't prepare. Therefore, every presentation is this way, even though I have prepared. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. So now it's totally different, but still carrying from that high school experience. It's still yeah. pulling over a little bit. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. still in the back of my mind of, hey, you might mess up like you did back in 11th grade <laughs> yeah. because you didn't prepare back then. But now I have a different stress level, but I don't necessarily recognize that it's because of that underlying preparation that I was mm -hmm. lacking at some point in my, my life. Yeah. And I guess, you know, another really good question too is, is the anxiety you're experiencing something that's unbearable or do you feel like you're able to push through it and recognize like it is uncomfortable, but I am able to tolerate it because while we can talk about anxiety disorders and, you know, depression and different mental health concerns, there is a, the reality that we're humans and we're worried about being judged by others and we want to perform well and some level of stress and discomfort is so good for us, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it's certainly bearable. I can feel my heart beating out of my chest, but yeah. it is, is something that once I get through it, I feel great. It's just that lead up and the first five minutes into the presentation that are tough, but mm -hmm. I'll keep signing up for more. Yeah. <laughs> something too, that can be an interesting perspective. And I don't know if it'll resonate with anybody that's listening, but sometimes it's really helpful just to agree with whatever your brain's telling you. So if you're, you know, really worried about somebody judging you, to be like, yep, they're going to judge me so bad. I hope they judge me worse than ever before and they never forget about it. And that like disarms your brain a little bit to just be like, oh, okay. You know, whatever I was worrying about actually isn't that, it's not big of a deal. So yeah, I haven't heard it in that, in that frame before, but I have heard it. If somebody was saying something maybe negative about you, let's say, oh yeah, Luke, your podcast sucks. I'd be like, okay, maybe it does. Yeah. That just Absolutely. shuts them up because they're trying to get a reaction out of you. Mm -hmm. So you could do the same thing with yourself to say, this is going to be scary. Yep, it sure is. But I'm mm -hmm. going to go through it anyway. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's beautiful. Just not really not really fighting with it, fighting with those, those thoughts. Yeah, because like you mm -hmm. said earlier, if you fight with something like that, it can make it bigger than it really is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Next topic here, I want to talk a little bit about the nervous system response to stress and mental health. Mm -hmm. And we talked a little bit about, you know, you feel stressed out, your heart's beating out of your chest, but what's actually happening when you go through these different stressful moments, maybe you're in depression, what's, what's happening to your body as you go through those different high and low points? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, 
it depends on a lot of different things. Unfortunately, there's not a great answer again. But with, I guess you mentioned depression. Is that one that we should focus on a little bit for this one? Yeah, so it can be a variety of things. It can be financial stress. It can be, you know, family conflict, certain things like that that are, you know, make it really difficult to engage in daily tasks like you were. So it can be that social aspect. It can also be some more biological components like a serotonin deficit. Maybe it's some inflammation in your brain or in your body that could be causing some depression symptoms. Or, you know, maybe it's some sort of genetic link that's going on where you have a family predisposition of depression. At the same time, you know, recognizing that maybe it's more of um, the circumstance, like we already talked about, like the environment that your family is living in, recognizing that maybe there's a higher stress level or there are some financial concerns or less access to really healthy food or things like that. So yeah, I think it can be a variety of things that can be causing that, causing the depression symptoms. Yeah. And as somebody who's feeling sad, and I know it's not going to be black and white, but where do you reach, what recommendation would you have to people to say, yeah, I'm, I'm not just having a sad day. I Mm -hmm. need to talk with somebody about what's going on. Yeah. So I think it's really important to recognize where have you been um, in the past? Are you acting in ways that feel really, really different than how you were maybe a year or two ago? Have you been going through something? Have you been grieving something? The pandemic was a great reason to maybe say you're not okay, right? Everyone was feeling really down and there was a lot of uncertainty. I think that the, the clinical diagnosis for major depressive disorder is looking at if you're having these persistent low moods sadness, feeling hopeless, there's a change in your sleep, change in appetite for a consistent two-week period would be the clinical clinical realm. But just because you're not feeling like you fit that complete criteria doesn't mean that you can't reach out for help in some way. If you're having any suicidal thoughts, any thoughts about death and dying, feeling extremely fatigued, I think all of those reasons are great reasons to reach out to somebody and change something in your routine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what are, the, what are those different ways that people can reach out if they're, they're feeling sad and feeling, feeling like they need to talk with somebody. What would you Mm -hmm. recommend? Definitely would recommend, I guess, in the non-professional help, reaching out to, you know, a trusted friend, trusted family member, maybe some sort of leader in a community that you align with, whether that's a religious leader, spiritual leader, maybe somebody at work that you trust, something like that. A lot of times just having the support of somebody else is really helpful. Depression can be so isolating. And so just getting some sort of support. If you feel like you really need some sort of help that's more of a professional, there's 988, which is a mental health hotline, which is a great resource. And you can also text a number, which I am not sure if it's 988 or if it's a different link, but we could probably provide it after the show. But there's a number that you can text and there will be a licensed professional counselor who's able to respond to you if you're feeling suicidal or you're not really sure where to go from there. And then if you're feeling more of the depression symptoms, but not in such an urgent way, you know, looking on psychology today, calling the back of your insurance card, going to, if you need to, going to a hospital, going to an inpatient hospital. I think those are all really great resources. I know that there's a crisis center opening up for youth in Boise, and I think there's already a crisis center in uh, Meridian or Nampa, but I'm not sure which area. So those are always great options too. Yeah, it seems like the availability of those different types of centers are becoming Mm -hmm. more readily readily available. I think part Mm -hmm. of it is the growth, but I think part of it is 
mental health has become less stigmatized as of late. Mm -hmm. Is that what you've seen as you started to enter into this world as a professional? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's so many people that are wanting to help and that just have knowledge of how to get access to the next person. So, you know, I think there's so much hesitation and I definitely was like this when I was first finding my own counselor, you know, many years ago. And I felt like I needed to find the perfect person for me. And if I didn't find the perfect person, I couldn't ask for help. So I was like looking at their profiles and all of that stuff. But in reality, you know, a lot of counselors are so happy to say, hey, I actually don't treat what you're looking for. I have, you know, these four referrals that I would love to refer you to. And these people are great in what you're looking for. And so just getting in contact with anybody in the mental health world, I think is so helpful to start to, to find the connection that's meaningful to you. Yeah, I think that's important because someone could come in and say, look, I had a bad experience with one person. I'm never mm -hmm. going to go talk to a counselor again, but I still have the underlying things that I want to solve for, right? Mm -hmm. So you almost have to think of it like, like dating almost, right? The first mm -hmm. person you meet probably isn't going to be the person you spend the rest of your life with, but you can mm -hmm. keep trying and keep, keep meeting new counselors that allow you to get somebody that jives with, with your personality and your needs and, and your goals. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, every person, every clinician is trained in such different things. You know, there's so many people that I wouldn't see because I don't have the correct training in and I would refer them out you know, right away without hesitation. And so, yeah, it's, it's really, it's so, it's such an easy process once you are able to make that first connection. But I know that there's, even though there is less of a stigma, there's still a lot of waiting lists and it can still be a really frustrating process for people when they first start. So I think that's one of the, the main issues right now. Yeah. Well, I'm mm -hmm. glad that there's more centers opening up. That'll be helpful for folks. Yeah. The crisis center should be amazing. Very exciting. What about mental health in the workplace? I think mm -hmm. often people are very stressed at these fast-paced jobs and they're under a lot of pressure from their bosses. What are some different tactics or things that people face and then how do you, how can they cope with them? Mm -hmm. It's hard. I mean, it's such a such a broad question and so, you know, it's so difficult to to fully know what people are experiencing. But I think it's it's finding that balance between, okay, how can you honor a commitment? How can you cope with stress that's inevitable in any workplace? Yet also recognize that sometimes things are not going to be okay. And sometimes change does need to happen. And you do need to speak up when, when your gut is telling you things aren't okay at this workplace. So it's really hard to navigate for people. And I think if you do have a therapist, it's a great thing to talk about with them because they're unbiased. But yeah, finding that balance between, yeah, between the commitment you have and also recognizing that your life is not just work. There's a balance of friends and other family and other things that are meaningful to you. And so if you feel like your time is being consumed by this work, A, are you avoiding anything else that's in your life? And is it really sustainable for the long term? And do you need to find some some other balance or, or speak up about your hours you're being required to work or things like that? Yeah. Is it mm -hmm. often stress that's the biggest biggest cause of workplace mental health questions? Is that what you see most? Yeah, I think so. I think stress and depression as well. A lot of times I would have to look up the study because I don't know it off the top of my head. But I think that a lot of times a high level of anxiety and stress can often lead somebody into a more depressed mood 
And so there can be a cycle for people who experience anxiety and depression. It's a really common, it's called comorbid, and it's a really common thing to have both diagnoses. And so we see that a lot, really high levels of stress. And then your body's just like, okay, we gotta, we gotta shut down for a second. So I think, I think both can be really common in the workplace. And can that workplace stress be addictive to people in some way? Is that something that you Mm -hmm. see at all? That's interesting. I don't know. I'm curious if you have any insight for that and if you've seen that in your workplace. Yeah. What do you think? I don't know if it's necessarily the stress, but I've definitely in my life experienced that desire to stay busy, to keep, Mm. to keep going. And I think it's because there were other things that weren't going as well as I would have wanted in my life. Mm-hmm. whether it was relationships or maybe my health wasn't where I wanted it to be. Instead of focusing on being well-rounded, I focused on just diving into my work, using that as the only thing that I was good at and everything else just waned. But then it yeah. created all this stress of things that I pushed off to the side. Mm-hmm. But I validated it by continuing to focus on my work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So brings up a couple different things. It makes me think about how our society just focuses so heavily and praises people so much for being hyperproductive. And it becomes such an easy way to get, you know, validation from other people. You're getting rewards from work. I could absolutely see how it could be addicting in that way where, you know, you are getting praise for working crazy hours and really, really showing up in work, but no one knows what outside work looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think it was a way to avoid other things that didn't feel great? I do think it was a way to avoid other things that I felt like I had less control over in the, in the moment Mm -hmm. because I wasn't defining what was in and out of my control. I was just saying it's, it's out of my control. So I can't, can't focus on it and was focusing on the one thing at that time that I felt like I could control the most, which was work. Absolutely. Yeah. So when we're really stressed, we definitely want to latch on to the one thing that feels constant and that we have control over. Um, and so I, I definitely see a lot of times with anxiety or stress, people really latching on to that and avoiding the other things that do feel a little bit more out of, out of their control or just chaotic or stressful. So I think that definitely fits what I see too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One thing that I heard from a friend recently was talking about work-life balance and living your life to the fullest. And she said, when you go to someone's funeral, right? And someone reads the eulogy, they're not going to talk about the work you did. They're not going to talk about the long hours you spent to get a project over the finish line or the extra weekends you worked to get a deliverable complete. Mm -hmm. They're going to talk about, what kind of son you were, what kind of daughter you were, what kind of father you were, mother you were, what kind of friend you were. The other stuff, it feels so important in the moment and it's all you can focus about. It's all this stress it generates. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, there's a lot more meaningful ways to spend your time and focus on being more well-rounded. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was an impactful way to say, look, the things you're dealing with at work, they feel important in the moment, but mm-hmm. at the end of the day, they're probably not. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I think that could just stand alone without anything else said said to it because it it's really beautiful. And I think it goes into the values idea 
of, you know, really getting in touch with what's going to create meaning for you. And it's not to say some people, maybe work really is what's giving them the most meaning. But if that resonated with you, what your friend said, that I'm guessing work maybe isn't a giant value. Maybe it gives you opportunities to do other things that are more of a value for you. Yeah. Yeah, it can be valuable. But if it's the only valuable thing in your life, then it becomes a detriment. Yeah, so. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Work-life balance isn't everything, but it's certainly something to consider. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as people are having these emotions, whether it's in the workplace, at home, in the relationships, what are some coping mechanisms that you recommend? And they might have been things we've talked about already, but maybe a summary of the things that you'd recommend to help people get over those hurdles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the mindfulness is huge. Having awareness. The greatest definition I've heard for mindfulness is allowing the present moment to be what it is without adding extra extra thoughts to it. Because, you know, there's so much time throughout the day that we're just, yeah, overloading our brains with thoughts versus just being in the moment. And so it's just allowing the moment to be what it is and being aware of that. So I think mindfulness is great. And then I think having some sort of practice that connects you with your body. So for me, I love yoga and I love hiking because it's two things that really allow me to slow down and really get in touch with, okay, what emotions are coming up today? Why are those things happening? How can I just give myself some compassion for those emotions, give myself some validation for those? So I think some sort of practice like that And then I think if you can become an observer of your thoughts, that's going to be a huge strength to have because then we're not just reacting. It's, it's creating space between thought and action. And so you're not just reacting and then looking back and regretting it. Um, And so people do that through meditation or other, other forms like that. So I would say, start to observe your thoughts. That can be really helpful. And then if you feel like, you know, you need someone who's unbiased or things just feel a little bit too overwhelming or you're not really sure where to start, I would say if it's in your financial means, reach out to a therapist. If you feel like maybe finances or time is a little bit more limited, there's a lot of online resources to find too. And a lot of people on YouTube, we could put them in the show notes, but there's a lot of really great people that you can follow and and get more perspective from to help out. Yeah, I love that. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness observing your thoughts, self-care routines. Mm -hmm. And then if all of those fail, yeah, talk with somebody, talk with somebody about how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. All those other things can be a really good foundation, but you don't have to do it alone. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think I keep bringing up like our larger culture and how it impacts us, but I think it's so important that there's so many times where we are so individualistic, but it really denies what we have done as humans throughout so many hundreds of years, which is rely on each other. And I think that that community is such a big piece to humans thriving. And so, you know, not forgetting to, to lean on other people and we don't have to do it alone. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Any other big key areas of mental health that you want to mention to the audience today? Hmm. I think we touched on what I focus on the most, which is anxiety. It's geared more towards that anxiety and stress. I think one piece that I didn't tie really back to another was when we're thinking about the validating our own emotions, how important that can be as parents or as teachers or as people who are working with other kids to not only have our emotions regulated, but to validate our kids' emotions. That can be one of the the biggest things in helping kids navigate their feelings is just to validate them and not jump to a solution and not jump to saying, 
okay, maybe you're feeling this, but this is why you're wrong and you're going to get in trouble. Just taking a second to say, it's, you know, it's going to be okay. I understand why you would feel that way. And I'm here for you. And we're going to figure out a way to work through it together. That's so disarming compared to, you know, other responses. So I think we can do the same thing we can do for us, for like the younger, younger kids that don't know how to do it yet for themselves. Yeah. A couple of things I want to expand on there. So you mentioned being a parent, being a teacher, recognizing your own emotions. I think that's so important because I've seen parents who put their needs aside to say, my emotions are less important than maybe my kids' emotions. Mm -hmm. And what happens is it seems like those tend to build up and eventually reach a breaking point to where they have a hard time processing emotions later on because they didn't process them in, in the moment. Have you seen that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, kids learn through modeling, right? So if yeah. they're never seeing a person say, hey, I'm having a really hard day. And so because of that, I'm going to take a day off or I'm going to go do something for my self-care or I'm going to go see my therapist. They're like, what do I do with these emotions that I'm feeling? And I'm never seeing you model, right? So there there can be so much strength and power in, in showing that process and being really verbal to your kids about that process of what you do to manage your emotions and to experience your emotions. So you're telling me that when I cried a Disney movie with, <laughs> with my daughter, it's okay. <laughs> Great. It's so good. <laughs> Great um, modeling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think going with that, like the disarming your kids, remembering that nobody ever feels better when you yell, relax right? People feel better when you say like, that makes sense that you feel that way. And I'm right here and I don't have the answers, but it's going to be okay. And so just re remembering like, we don't feel better when you're yelled at. So yeah, modeling that with other kids. Yeah. It's the validation of emotions. Maybe even if you disagree with the emotion, mm -hmm. I think that that can be hard because let's just say you're a parent and you're in a store and your kid is being emotional. There's probably something underlying to it. Maybe they're yeah. tired, maybe they're hungry. And instead of saying, be quiet or calm down, you could instead maybe reframe it and say, I understand you're frustrated. I understand you're, you're feeling this emotion right now. Let me give you a hug or something. And then you can continue on and maybe talk about once they've calmed down a little bit about the situation versus trying to squash it in the moment. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. I think that's great. Recognizing that your perspective as an adult is not the truth because we're all humans and we all have a very warped perspective that's driven by our own emotions. And so maybe you're being triggered by something else when your kids are being emotionally triggered. So there's a lot going on. And so being able to soothe yourself and then also be able to recognize my kid's perspective is not mine. And so I can validate their experience while not agreeing with it. I love what you said about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's important, especially with, you know, so much goes on with these kids as they're growing up and learning emotions, right? They mm -hmm. aren't an adult. They don't process emotions in the same way that we do. They're still mm -hmm. learning. What does it mean to feel sad? What does it mean to feel angry? And so if we're squashing that, it's going to be detrimental to their long-term understanding of how to get through some of those moments. Totally. Yeah. And that reminds me too, that just because we're validating emotions doesn't mean that we're creating only certain spaces that are safe. It means that we're validating emotions and we're saying, 
we can be scared and we can be brave and we can do something new today, right? So it's it's being able to not just create the shell for, for your kid or for the, the kids you're working with, but it's saying like, how can we feel these emotions and we can go do the things that we want to try and we can build this resilience in these kids, which I think is awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can feel that a little bit this morning when I dropped off Logan at school. I could tell she was a little bit nervous oh, yeah. for the first time. I mean, it was kindergarten. It's It's a big day. But gave her a hug, dropped her off. I said, I'm so excited to hear about hear about her week. And she ran into class and saw her through the window. Wow. She was having a good time. So it's it's knowing that, yeah, there's going to be those nerves, but also knowing, like you said, you can be brave and overcome them at the same time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's so great to hear. All right. We're going to pivot to a few rapid fire questions. Okay. All right. First question. Most common misconception about therapy. Hmm. That your therapist is going to be a really passive listener and just say, how did that make you feel? It's very not the case. (laughs) Is that what we see in Hollywood movies? And is that why people feel that way? It must be. I think I've, I've heard that so many times and it's a very active process. So I don't know. I haven't experienced that myself, but I've, I've heard a lot of people say they just, they repeat what I've already said and we just keep repeating the same thing. That's not true. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Next, a book everyone should read on mental health. Ooh, um, for anxiety and OCD, Stopping the Noise in Your Head by Reed Wilson is great. Recommend it to a lot of people. If you want a deeper dive into trauma and PTSD, it can be a little bit heavier, but The Body Keeps the Score is really great. And then trying to think what else. I think Brene Brown has some really awesome books about vulnerability and shame. So if you want to get into emotions more, if you like that piece of it, I'd say go with Brene Brown for a little bit. What is your go-to self-care practice? Mm, I love movement. So I would say probably yoga, go on a walk, go on a hike. Those have been my favorite. I feel like they just being outside or getting to stretch and slow down. um, Those are the best. Got to get the body moving. Mm-hmm. Your biggest challenge being a counselor. That's difficult. I think it is recognizing my limitations and knowing that if I don't have the answers, like there's a lot of people to reach out to and refer to. And just remembering that I'm still pretty new in this process and I still have a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. What would you say to your younger self if you could go back and give advice Mm -hmm. on mental health? Yeah, I would say to to not focus so much on finding a perfect routine that was going to make me feel better. I think I got so wrapped into, okay, you know, eating this for dinner made me feel really good. So I'm going to do it every day or working out like this made me feel good. So I'm just going to do it all the time. I was so focused on how I can feel okay, rather than just letting myself be in the moment and make mistakes and, you know, get to really connect with people and have meaningful conversations rather than being so worried about, about the future or what they would think. So I would just stay to relax and enjoy the moment more. <laughs> Great. Last question. Thousand dollars on the line. You have to beat me in one game. What's it going to be? <laughs> I don't think I've ever beat you in any game. Um, 
You could do it once. I would have to choose volleyball because I Ooh, probably what I could beat you nice. at for sure. Yeah. One on one volleyball. Yeah, maybe like the volleyball that's on the ping pong tables. I forgot the name for it, but how do you I play that? that? I think that you have it's two people, I believe, and then you like pass set hit it and it has to bounce i think on the other side of the net so it's just like volleyball but with the big table it's not a true ping pong table it's like shaped a little different but looks like mm-hmm. yeah all right when my achilles is healed <laughs> up i'm gonna take you on thousand bucks <laughs> <laughs> that's so the first thousand bucks made from the podcast is going to the volleyball bet yes <laughs> pool Oh my gosh, you'd probably find a way to win, honestly. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, as we wrap things up here, Lil, is there anything that you want to summarize for the listeners about mental health, some of the stigmas that are involved with it? Anything that can help our audience cope and understand and be better prepared around mental health moving forward? Yeah, you know, I think that it's one piece of overall health and it's still such a growing field. And so getting your hands on any of the information out there can be so helpful. You know, learning more about emotions or learning about what supports our mental health through food and exercise and being around people. I'd say just, you know, if you can like get into some of that research and some of those books, it's really helpful. And I would also say, you know, if this episode resonates with you at all, and it you have that itch of like, maybe I do need to go see a counselor. I would say, why not just go for it? If you don't like it, then you're back to right where you were before. But if it's something that ends up being meaningful for you, then, then it's definitely worth it. And so I would say, I would say make the call and and be brave and try it out or just try something new. If that's, if that, if you feel like you've been going to rep. So, yeah. Honestly, a couple of those questions you asked me, it made me think pretty deeply about some of the things that caused me to struggle with public speaking and some of the avoidance that I had with my workplace for some time. So mm-hmm. if it can be impactful in a short conversation like this, I know having that intimate conversation could certainly be valuable to people out there who need it. So yeah. appreciate all of the insight you had today, Lil. It was, I learned a lot, I know, and I hope everyone else who is listening is also learning a lot as well. Yeah, it's so special just to get to to come on here and talk to you and be able to talk through some of the things that I get to do and and to learn from you too and be challenged by some of the questions that you had. So I really appreciate it. And just getting to do this is awesome. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Thanks again, Lil. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks again for all of you who tuned in today. Stay on your path, stay inspired, and above all, stay great. We'll see you soon.